Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year, 2018. What do you think of that? What a, what a, have you tried writing that on your checkbook yet? Just doesn't, it just doesn't seem right. Well, um, thanks for being here. We are so excited about what God has to show us this morning. And before I get going, uh, one, if, if you just be, be praying for Adam and Jenny and the family, they've been battling the crud. And so he decided not to spread that to the rest of us by coming and hugging us and shaking our hands this morning. So, so eventually he'll listen to it on, on this on the podcast, but be praying for him. And then also, if you were planning on coming to the high school service tonight, we have, in the light of Ice Mageddon, uh, we have canceled high school, which pretty much has guaranteed that nothing is going to happen. So thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Just before Thanksgiving, we were in the book of Mark, which we're going to continue again this morning, and, the, and we finished the first half of the book of Mark right before Thanksgiving, and, and it ended with Jesus asking his disciples, uh, who do the people say I am? And they gave some, some answers, and then Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? And Peter makes the proclamation, we see you, you are the Messiah, you are the Messiah. And that's where we ended. And it was really the first time that that proclamation had been made in the book of, of Mark. And this morning, we start with the second half of the Gospel of Mark. And the second half focuses on what Jesus came to do. Peter had just called Jesus, you are the Messiah. And now Jesus is going to begin to explain what that means, what the Messiah has come to do, and what that's going to mean for Jesus, and also what it's going to mean for those who have chosen to follow Jesus. Well, several years ago, um, I heard for the first time a song by the music group Mercy Me. I'm sure you guys have heard it. It's a song titled, Dear Younger Me. Mercy Me's lead singer, Bart Millard, began thinking what he would say to himself if he could go back to a younger version of himself, an eight-year-old version of himself. What would he say to that eight-year-old version? His, his upbringing had been pretty tough, and uh, he just wished he could go back and encourage, encourage this eight-year-old version of himself to hang in there, to trust Jesus, that God would walk, them, walk him through those, those years. And so he began writing, Dear Younger Me, and listen, listen to a few of these words. Dear younger me, where do I start? If I could tell you, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry I'm just, if, if I could tell you everything that I have learned so far, then you could be one step ahead of all the painful memories still running through my head. I wonder how much different things would be, dear younger me, dear younger me. And later on in the song, he, he, he wrote this. If I knew then what I know now, condemnation would have had no power. My joy, my pain would have never been my worth. If I knew then what I know now, would not have been hard to figure out what I would have changed if I had heard. It's an interesting challenge to think of what we would write to a younger version of ourselves if that were possible. Now, if I had the miraculous chance to actually go back and have a conversation with the younger version of myself, I came up with several things that I would want to tell this younger version of myself. <laughs> Don, 
make Jesus, make Jesus your best friend. This only happens by spending time together with him. Or don't waste the thousands of hours you're going to invest in the game of golf. It's going to only cause you grief. (laughs) Or surround yourself with people who have great dreams for their life. And let me tell you about a few who you're, you're going to meet along the way. Don't miss these opportunities to interact with them, to learn from them, to develop relationship with them. Or quit worrying about what others think of you and be bold and introduce them to Jesus. Or don't miss one chance you have to hang out with your kids. You're going to love your kids. Or wait till you get to see who you're going to (laughs) marry. So, (laughs) that's good news, thank you. So, so quit worrying about girls, relax, relax. Or, you need to know that God's promises are true, so don't be afraid to stand on God's word. He always tells the truth. And finally, no matter what you do, Don, on July 28th, 2016, do not ride your bicycle through Kirkwood, Missouri. (laughs) It's a little inside story for a few of you. Well, life's years have a way of giving you a big picture perspective that's hard to see when you're young. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? When I think back of the early years uh, when I was wrestling with whether it was worth it to completely lay my life down and to follow, to follow Jesus, to trust him to make me into who he wanted me to be, those were scary times for me. I honestly struggled with whether God would do me right whether I could trust him. I think back when I was in my mid-20s and the thought of leaving the security and the accolades of what some called a dream job to take on a career of helping teenagers discover who Jesus was, that was a scary time for me. These were just a few of the things I thought of. and, And how about you? What would you say to a younger you if you had the chance to talk to a younger you or to write a letter to a to a younger you? What words of advice would you write? What would the perspective of life from where you sit now, what would that be to, as you speak into a younger version of yourself? What would you want to make sure that a younger you heard? What warnings would you give yourself? What missed opportunities would you highlight? And let me ratchet it up even a little more. Imagine, imagine if we could go to the week after our death, where our life ended here on earth. If we could somehow be transposed to that week after our death, what if we could stand in that place and look back? I think it would change our perspective on pretty much everything. And we don't like to think about these kind of things, um, but I wonder from that perspective, a week after your death, what words of wisdom you would have if you could go back and speak to a younger you from that seat. That would put some perspective on life. Well, those would be some important words to hear. And this morning, 
as we move into the book of Mark, Jesus, who came from heaven, from heaven to earth, has some things to say to us. He has seen his kingdom, the kingdom of God. He's seen it firsthand. That's where he lives. That's where he came from. He's an omnipresent God, which means he's, he can see the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. He knows where all this is going. He knows what really matters. He knows what's true. He knows what lies on the other side of life. He knows what it means to live life to the fullest while we're here on earth. His perspective is the big picture. So this morning, if you'll turn to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31, we'll go to to Mark 9, 1, and we'll be in the the NLT version, which I know is not something that that most of us have, but if you go to the YouVersion app, uh, you and go to events down at the bottom of the page on the little options and click in there um, and then go to our church and click into our church, you will get the scripture in the, in the NLT version, which I will also have up on the screen for you. So this section of scripture that we're going to read this morning, I, I'm calling it the continental divide of the book of Mark. Every summer we, we take a high school trip to Colorado. We take five buses of kids and we take them on Tuesday of that week to the Continental Divide. And up there, all the water drains one direction to the Pacific Ocean, and all the water drains the other direction to the Atlantic Ocean. It's a divide that, that, that separates the two sides of the United States. And this section of Scripture we're going to look at this morning is the Continental Divide of the book of Mark. It's going to, to separate people who are going to flow one way and people who are going to flow the other way. And you'll see that as we, as we work through it together. We'll start in verse 31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. That he must be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. So Jesus begins. And remember, Peter had just proclaimed to Jesus and to the disciples that that Peter recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Jesus begins to teach his disciples where this is going. He tells them some truth that they had never heard. this This was radical new news to these guys. From our perspective, we're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is going to the cross. We know all this is coming. But from their perspective, they had never heard of anything like this. This was shocking. This was, was not right. It didn't, it didn't make sense that Jesus would actually be moving toward terrible things where he would be rejected by the religious leaders, where he would be killed, but three days he would be risen. He would rise from the dead. This Messiah, the Son of Man, which was just a title that Jesus used for himself often, was going to suffer these kind of things. And again, for us, we, we know the end of the story, and so we know where this is all going. But for them, they, they didn't get this. I mean, for those of us who, who navigate through the Bible a lot, we know that in the book of Isaiah, there's a section where um, the Messiah is prophesied to be the suffering servant. Well, in the days of the disciples, that section of Scripture was never seen in the context of of the Messiah. That wasn't seen as a messianic section of Scripture. So this is all new to them. This is new to them, shocking to them. What are you talking about? Let's continue on, verse 32. As he talked about this 
openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Now, when the scripture says that Jesus began to speak, to talk about this openly with his disciples. It's just iterated, reiterating that, that Jesus is just being honest. He's laying it out there. They are used to him speaking in parables where things were kind of masked and you had to kind of dig to find the meeting. And, and he's going right past that and he's speaking openly and he's telling them the truth. And Peter, being true to the personality that we have seen previously, recoils at what he's hearing about this suffering Jesus. The stereotype of the Messiah that he was used to was a triumphant Christ. And Peter will have none of this foolish talk from Jesus. So Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to reprimand him, to correct him, to help him to see that that his, his thinking wasn't really on track here. Can you see Peter doing this? Can you see it? Verse 33. Jesus turned around and he looked at his disciples And then reprimanded Peter. And listen to what he says. Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Now most theologians believe that the book of Mark is actually Peter's version of the gospel. That Mark is writing down what Peter is telling him. And so if that is true, then we actually have a personal eyewitness account here of of this discussion going on between Peter and Jesus as Peter is, is telling Mark. Jesus in front of all his disciples, making sure that they're looking, reprimands Peter with some very strong words. Get away from me, Satan. Get away from me, Satan. Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from man's point of view. You you aren't looking at things from God's point of view. Now, the word Satan, um, it, it comes from a Hebrew word that actually means adversary. And Satan's thoughts and desires, the devil's plans, are adversarial to God's to God's plans. And Peter's strong reprimand to change Jesus' mind plays right into Satan's hand. Just as Satan had tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to not trust God, to see their plans as better than God's, Peter had seen his version of the Messiah as more right than Jesus' version of the Messiah. And just as Satan had tempted Jesus in the desert after his baptism, Peter offers Jesus the crown without the cross. For Peter, the indication that the Son of Man would die was unthinkable. But for Jesus, the cross was exactly where he was headed. So Jesus rebukes Peter. He calls him back into line. He says, get away from me, Satan. Uh, It's kind of an ambiguous command that could mean several things. Let me give you a couple options that it might mean. It could mean, Peter, as long as you're going to play the role of Satan, get out of my sight. It could be that simple. Or it could be understood as Jesus saying something like this, Peter, I address you presently as Satan, for you speak Satan's words, but return to your proper position behind me as my follower. Quit opposing God's way. That's demonic. Follow me. Let me tell you what it really looks like. Which takes us right into the next verse, verse 34. 
Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus says, and here it is, this is the continental divide. This is that moment of truth for those who are following him. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus calls in the crowd. He's no longer just talking to Peter and the disciples. He calls in everybody. There's a big group around him following him wherever he goes. And he calls them all in. He doesn't want anyone to miss this message because this message is for everyone. And he says to them three things. First of all, if you're going to follow me, you have to give up your own way. You either live for yourself or you live for the one you confess as the Messiah, Jesus It means saying no to you, and it means saying yes to Jesus. It means laying down the idolatry of self-determination. It means saying now that my life is all about following you, Jesus, wherever you lead. The bottom line is that you are saying, I choose to take myself off the throne of my life, and Jesus, I invite you to become my king. I give you the throne of my life. And second, Jesus says, If you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross. It's a walk to death. It's not normal. It's not natural. But Jesus is saying, this is necessary if you're going to follow me. And as Jesus calls his followers to take this posture of death to themselves, this would have meant more to people in Mark's day. Mark was written um, in Rome to a group of Christ followers at the time that Nero was in power. Nero actually was, at this time, crucifying Christians. And so to to Mark's people, the people who who originally read this, this this would have had a clear meaning to them. And they they were terrified, as any of us would be, of crucifixion. But, But to this community of people, this would have been actually encouraging it would have been encouraging to them. It would have, it would have um, helped them to see that, that this is a walk of obedience that's radical, but it's a walk of obedience that Jesus himself took. So instead of being um, abandoning you, you are actually walking with Jesus in the same path that, that he took. And third, Jesus said, after you've given up your own way and you've taken up your cross... Follow me. Follow me. Get behind me. Allow me to be your leader. Step in behind me. I'm going to walk, and I want you to walk behind me. But I'm your leader. It's a walk of obedience, and it's, it's very upside down from what we're used to. It sounds backwards. It found, sounds despondent. It sounds lifeless. But that isn't where Jesus was taking them. And it wasn't the truth. And it's a really good thing he didn't just leave them there because he added this next section, which I'm so thankful for, in verse 35. He, he said this. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Jesus was the one that the world had been created through. He's the one that came from the Father to earth to show us his true kingdom, God's way. The only way that's 
truly pure and real and full of right, righteous. And Jesus is helping these guys to see God's real way of living, the only way of living that doesn't lead to death. It actually leads to life. Jesus is giving them the reason why it is so important to recognize what it means to follow him, to lay down your life, to take up your cross and follow him. The reason is simple and profound. If you try to hang on to your life, you will actually lose it. But if you give, your, give up your life for his sake and the sake of this good news, you will actually save your life. The one who plays it safe and considers his existence more important than Jesus will lose both Jesus and eternal life, full life. Life as God set up from the beginning and life that will ultimately prevail after our time here on earth. And in contrast, the one who gives his life to follow Jesus and the good news of his coming will actually save his life. Following Jesus involves risking it all. It involves the safety, the security, and the satisfaction that this world seems to offer us. But his promise is that, is that this will lead to a reward that the world can, can never offer us. Jesus is opening their eyes to a spiritual truth. And as we know, as we walk through the rest of the of the book of Mark, we know where this heads. Jesus isn't, isn't just telling them this for themselves. He's modeling it to them. For his self-denial, his walk of taking up the cross, his sacrifice, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection actually leads to the salvation, the redemption, the eternal life of all mankind. It isn't something that Jesus just believed for them. It was a spiritual truth. It included himself. For humans can't save themselves. They can only deny themselves as Christ lays out for us, which actually leads leads to them being saved. This is why Jesus was so intent on calling everyone in and saying, don't miss this. Open your eyes. Guys, you can't miss this. If you want life, it's going to mean that you deny yourself, take up your cross, and you follow me. And Jesus wants to make sure they get it. So he asks them, asks them several questions, verses 36 and 37. And he's trying to clarify and help them to understand this. And he says, what do you, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? Now, this word soul is kind of a fuzzy word, and it's hard to get your arms around, but it's actually, the Greek word for the soul is actually a word that we all know. It's psyche, psyche. And it's bigger than, um, than life kind of in a, a boundary in a space, which is why it's translated soul. And, and in the context of taking up your cross, Jesus is, Jesus is asking a question that helps his followers to see there's an implication of losing your physical life, but not the loss of your soul. Jesus is helping them to see that to lose one's life is to lose physical existence, but to lose one's soul is way bigger than that. Eternal consequences. The one for whom the way of Jesus is more important than his own existence will secure his eternal being, but the one whose existence is more important than Jesus 
will lose both Jesus and his eternal existence, his soul. You can't really follow Jesus if you aren't willing to deny yourself and take up your cross too. And Jesus clarifies this through these questions. Open up your eyes. This is a no-brainer, guys. Many of you remember hearing the story of Jim Elliott. Uh, some of the younger, younger ones probably don't. But Jim Elliott was, was a, a man who died a martyr's death at the hands of the Aka Indians in South America. And he traveled there to tell them about Jesus. And, and uh, something he said has, been, has become a famous quote. And Jim Elliott understood this principle that Jesus was trying to get us to see. And here's what Jim Elliott said. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And finally, Jesus begins to close this discussion up. In verse 38, he says, If if anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he actually gives us a, a clue as to where this is all going. He recognizes, Jesus recognizes that those, there are those who will be ashamed of him and his message, which won't bode well for those who choose so. For there is a day when Jesus will return, and it will be a day of accounting, a day of reckoning. And Jesus isn't reluctant to speak of his own glory, but his glory is on the other side of his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection. He will return in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And when he returns, the decisions we have made concerning him will be what God accounts us for. Jesus isn't packing any punches here. He's laying it out very clearly. And finally, our last verse for this morning, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, some standing here today, right now, will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Now, theologians love this. They've got all sorts of explanations. And, and I, I think there's a simple answer to what Jesus is, is trying to help these guys say. He, he starts out and he says, I tell you the truth. He, he's saying, this is a solemn promise. This is going to happen. Some standing here right now will not die before they sing, see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. And what I think Jesus is saying to this group that's standing there is is, um, that there are some of you standing here, many of you standing here who actually will, you actually will see that the kingdom of God has come with great power. You will see Jesus' death and resurrection. You'll see the the infilling of the Holy Spirit and people who follow Jesus. You will see the defeat of Satan's dominion. You will see the transformation and redemption of multitudes of men and women who put their faith in him. And of course, many of those who were there did get to witness these things. I think that's where Jesus was, was taking that group. Wow. I mean, this is... Um, Can you imagine sitting there, standing there, listening to this? I mean, it's still kind of shocking today to hear what what Jesus says about what it means to follow him. So so that brings us to to an important part. we got to figure out, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I think um, most of us sitting in this room are probably at a place where you have said, 
Jesus, I want to follow you. Most of you in this room are followers of Jesus. And so let me, let me start by, by, think, by just talking about what, what this all could mean to us as followers of Christ. Let's think about Peter for a minute. Peter, who had, who had really good intentions, he thought he knew the kind of Messiah that Jesus needed to be. And he tried to reshape and redefine to Jesus who the Messiah should be according to Peter's um, conception of what that must, must be. I think we must be careful that we don't end up like Peter calling Jesus our Savior but then having in mind the things of men and not having in our mind the things of God. Jesus made it clear that to follow him we have to give up our own way. We need to take up our cross. We need to get behind him as his follower with our eyes and ears fixed on him, ready to go where he leads as we follow. And it's not easy, it's not safe, but it certainly will be the best. Jesus followers, are you following Jesus? Are you asking Jesus to follow you? I think that's, that's what we have to wrestle, wrestle with. It's a hard teaching for us to hear, and it's even harder to obey. In Luke's version of this, of this story, Luke actually says that you need to take up your cross daily, daily. There's a constant sacrifice that requires, requires daily obedience and renewed commitment to this life of laying everything down to follow Jesus. Everything we are, everything we have, all that we dream, our choices, our thoughts, our words, our very life needs to be brought to the foot of Jesus. It means that we see where Jesus goes and we choose to follow. We hear what Jesus says and we obey. We follow Jesus. So, Jesus followers, who really is on the throne of your life? Who is your leader, your Lord? We must be careful that Jesus doesn't say to us the same thing he said to the group of people in Mark chapter 7, just the previous, previous chapter, when he said to a group of people, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. May you and I be people who have in our mind the things of God and not the things of man. That's Jesus' message to those of us who have decided to follow him. But I also know that in a room this size, there are multiple number of people who have not made Jesus your Lord, your Savior. You've wrestled with it for many, many reasons. And I want to just talk to you just for a minute, if you'll allow me. Please, please listen. These could be the words to the younger you. Satan successfully tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He convinced them that what God told them wasn't really true. That God wasn't really being honest with them. That if they knew the truth, they wouldn't trust God. That, that was the message. And I want to say to those of you who have not made Jesus Lord of your life, it's the same message that he's throwing out to you today. It might sound like this. God's ways aren't really best for you. God isn't really telling you the truth. The truth is you'd be better off if you make yourself God. 
It's much more subtle than that, but by believing that you know better than God what is best for your life, you are indeed making yourself your God. The deeply embedded sin nature within us pulls us toward these lies, lies that lead us to believe that the things we think will make us happy but actually will end ultimately in us being miserable. It's a lie, and Jesus came to set things right, to reveal the way that things work in his kingdom, which is counterintuitive to our sinful nature, and it's counterintuitive to this culture we live in. Jesus says that the way to gain life is actually to lay down your life and then to follow him. So those of you who sit here as non-followers of Jesus, hear the loving words of Jesus. He's calling you to life. Who's on the throne of your life? To put yourself in the place of God is is idolatry. It's to make yourself God. And Jesus came to open our eyes to his kingdom, his good kingdom, his right kingdom, his plan to bring us back back into a relationship with him. Have you made yourself the God of your life, thinking that will make you happy, that will make you more satisfied? Have you allowed Jesus to be molded around your ideals? Have you thought, I will wait until more of my life is gone, and then I'll think about this God stuff? Have you bought into the lie that a life with God is less of a life, and a life without God is more of a life? And more, more importantly, Are you willing and ready to say, God, I want to I trust you. I want to follow you, Jesus. Are you willing to lay down this morning your life, to give him full reign of everything, your dreams, your thoughts, your finances, your relationships, your plan for the future, everything? Because Jesus' promise to you, his promise is that if you give up your life for his sake and for the sake of the good news, you will actually save your life. But his promise is also that if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose your life. The decision is now in your hands. What will you do with what Jesus says is true? It's hard stuff. But God's ways are right and good. Even if they feel awkward. If you're not a follower of Jesus, please, please don't leave this place today without giving yourself, laying your life down and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. The promise from Jesus himself is that you will actually gain your life. I found it to be true in my own life and... um, and so many others here too. Don't leave here without giving your life to Jesus. Dear younger you, listen to Jesus. Well, I started this morning by asking the question, what advice would you write to to a younger you? What do you think Peter would write to a younger Peter? He might say, don't take Jesus aside and tell him to not go to the cross. (laughs) That was really stupid. 
But I am so thankful that Peter stuck his foot in his mouth. Because of Peter's challenge, we have this teaching that we went through this morning about following him. And and this morning, Jesus is writing a letter to a younger version of all of us. There will be a day when he will return in the glory of his Father with his holy angels as he has emphatically made clear. He has shared with the younger us what brings life, what costs life. The challenge is for us to trust what he says is true, to give up our own way, to take up our cross, and to to follow Jesus. There will come a day when we will look back and we will realize, oh my gosh, it was true. It was true. Children, teens, junior high, high school, men and women, the way of life is through following Jesus. And it's really, really good news. Let's pray. Lord, um, this is hard to get our arms around. I know for me, I, I ask questions like, okay, what does that mean? How do I do this today, this hour? How do I do it with my family? How do I do it? Um, but Lord, uh, I ask that you would help all of us to understand and to take that step of faith where we would truly deny ourselves, we would lay down our lives, we would take up our cross, and we would follow you. Thank you for loving us so well, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.